All right. So I'm here with Jonathan M.S. Pierce, despite me not understanding how time works. Um, he's being very gracious. So um, he's a tippling philosopher on YouTube. So Jonathan, would you mind telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me on. Uh, we've had a couple of conversations over at my place, uh, which have been, you know, really enjoyable. Uh, so thanks for the invite back. Um, so um, philosophy of religion, that's uh, that's my thing. Um, I've written a whole bunch of books and and been writing at Patheos Non-Religious for, for many years until we got cancelled uh, from there due to the... Uh, the, uh, the company being taken by over by an evangelical christian sort of ceo that said doesn't didn't didn't want any people naysaying so the the atheist channel non-religious channel went and luckily uh, a new startup media organization called only sky which is particularly for non-religious people to give them a voice um i'm now a column columnist there and and a reporter there and and whatnot doing all sorts of sort of writing there so writing is my thing um and uh, particularly interested in the philosophy of religion, uh, written a bunch of books on on particular areas of, of Christianity, such as the resurrection and the nativity and how they don't make any sense historically, um, you know, archaeologically, culturally, <laughs> philosophically, the whole shebang. Um, and yeah, just love talking about pretty much anything and everything. Yeah, and um, we're here today to talk about your new book, 30 Arguments Against the Existence of God, and actually got it right here. Hey, thank you very <laughs> much, Anderson. That's very kind of you. So we're only going to talk about five arguments today, and if you want to hear the other 25, well, then I guess you'll just have to buy the book, you freaking cheapskates. That's so, <laughs> and then um, the three of these arguments, though, the three that we're starting out with, um, they do kind of blur together a little bit, at least when I'm talking about them. Um, so... First, we should talk about what you mean by God in this book, though. I think you specify right away that you're talking about omni-God, as you call it. Yeah, it's funny. So I used to do, I, I wrote a book many years ago called um, uh, The Little Book of Unholy Questions, which is like 500, 501 questions to ask God that, that looks at like, you know, kind of really loaded questions basically to show that god is a pretty incoherent concept and then i wrote this other book to do with like the classical theism version of god right and we'll talk about that in just a second but I, when i was giving presentations on on these i used to do uh, the case against god as a, as a as a talk i used to give and uh, you'd always get the occasional person that would say well you know great but that's not my god and so you've got to be really careful all the time to say right before I start this project, this is the God I'm talking about. And because there are as many gods as there are believers, essentially. So what you've got to do is find some a God that 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 has the most commonalities. And really it boils down to the omni-god, what I call omni-god, which is the god of classical theism, which is the god that is all powerful, all all-knowing and all loving. So omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent. And some people will include omnipresent in there as well. Uh and 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 as most theists believe in that God, um, and so therefore that that's the best place to start because you know you you are distilling it down to to some really core cool component parts that, that that most Christian philosophers will will agree on. Yeah. Um, but the big one is divine foreknowledge, and we can go on and talk about that for, for a bit. Before. Yeah, yeah. No, you specify right away. We're talking about a monotheistic God with omnipotence, omniscience, which includes divine foreknowledge of every event, and omnibenevolence. So. For our purposes, we're not talking about polytheism. We're not talking about open theism. So you sort of narrow the focus right away. But 
Not really, since since most theists do seem to believe in omni-god as you define him. So, you know, and I did want to just say, um, in some ways, I view sort of what we're about to do as like, you know, going back to my roots and like beating up on fundamentalist Christianity. But these are also really powerful arguments like teleological evil, um, which you have in your chapter called Why Don't We Photosynthesize, that I really just don't see any compelling answers to from any quarters. So, you know, I, I appreciate that, um, you know, parts of this book do just apply to, you know, more sophisticated forms of Christianity. But there are some believers who would be on our side, you know, like when we're, we're going to be talking about like um, eternal conscious torment a little bit. And there are Christians, you know, genuine Christians who would sort of be like, no, I agree with you. This is insane. Yeah. Like, you know, like this is totally, totally not true. And for those people, I would think like, well, then you're on our side then. <laughs> you know, like yeah. we can kind of like join forces here. And um, you can take this to weed out the bad forms of Christianity. I mean, really, that's what we're doing too. Um, but yeah, so for people who might complain like, oh, you're attacking this narrow version of God or this only this these types of Christianity, but not my kind of Christianity. It's like, well, then you should be joining us, and, like be on our side. And actually, you know, yeah. you know universalists do do that. So you, you I, I've known some universalists who are really now come to realize how incoherent uh, hell, heaven and hell as a binary sort of uh, outcome for a spectrum of behaviors is, is incoherent. And so universalists are, yep, heaven and hell, right, I get it. They, they don't make sense, or at least not in the, not in the sense that most people understand heaven mm-hmm. and hell. And and so and and you're right. There's so many lay people. This is the God that they understand, which is God is love. You hear this? God is infinite love. God is love. The whole idea. Okay, that's omnibenevolent. And they, well, God of course is uh, supremely powerful. That's omnipotence. Of course, God knows everything. And okay, so there we are. And so I think only the universalists. Um, and you mentioned open theists. Open theism is a really interesting idea, which is that God doesn't know the future of uh, of all freely willed events, uh, and and that you know free will is allows for God to not be omniscient in the way commonly understood. But I think that presents just as many problems as it solves classically with with so many theistic moves is that uh, by presenting a solution they end up creating more problems and then in fact you know a solution over here actually excludes a solution that they gave over here for something else and it becomes a very complicated thing you have to keep an eye on actually you know what are you saying here because i'm not sure that coheres with what you said at another point but but anyway i digress yeah. No. So do you want to uh, jump into the first argument or any other preliminaries that you want to cover? Well, uh, just uh, I, ju- I did want to say that divine foreknowledge, I think, is the biggest thorn in the side of, of let's say, Christianity. Um, but you can talk about any kind of theism that, that believes in this, which is to say that if God knows the future of all, you know, of any hypothetical uh universe that could be creative of any counterfactual if god if god knows the future of his own actions then there's a there's a just a torrent of problems so you know and i don't want to go into these other arguments particularly but just very quickly the idea that god would have full divine foreknowledge of his own future events such that because if god god can't be um fallible with his predictions right so god knowing what god himself would do in some future point means that there god is on this you know these tracks 
is is just a trolley going down these tracks with with only one direction to go in and and god therefore doesn't have free will and is just some kind of automaton because confined by his own knowledge of, of his own future future events uh, and, and actions and and i think you know problem c- compounded upon problem it seems to materialize with this idea of divine foreknowledge and i think that is the big problem so i do i do understand why theists would want to say well okay open theism you know i understand that move because you know that's that it's a big problem uh but i just think that that, as i said that move is is a problem and the other thing i'd like to say is i will use he but in the book i try really hard to call god it because i don't think god has a sex or a gender and therefore you know why should we present this idea that god is a he uh, and that that itself can cause problems in terms of patriarchy and all these kind of ideas but i'll tell you what writing a book trying to call god it the whole time <laughs> really bloody hard yeah i just finished um norm mcdonald's book his sort of fake memoir and there's this really funny part where i'm I sorry to spoil this one joke but um he's uh, he dies and goes to heaven and he's like, and I always wondered, you know, is God a, a white man or a woman or, or what? And he's like, and in that moment of standing before God, the divine being, I realized that these questions matter not. He's a white guy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Okay. So with that, the... Uh, the first, yeah, the so first, the three, the three uh, arguments that fit together are to do with God being unfair. And this idea that God is unfair invalidates, I would argue, God's omnibenevolence. And yeah, there, are, there are many ways in which God is unfair. Uh, the first one we'll look at, uh, the, the, um, this fits in with the broader idea of un- unfair levels of evidence but this is the the accidents of geography and history that that come about from you know uh what we can see anthropologically in the world around us in terms of you know looking at amazon rainforest and finding a bunch of people who never could have remotely had access to the gospels for example maybe anyone that existed before the gospels were written um anyone existed in parts of the world with no access to to the very particular claims of of the bible Uh, this appears to be slightly unfair because if you know you you need faith in god and this is called the scandal of particularity the idea that jesus christ is the only way to, to as the gospels arguably claim the only way to access you know god and salvation and redemption well then if you if you can't access the gospels and you can't access that particular way of being saved then you're screwed which means that you know all these people in different times and places are uh, not you know if if one of the intentions for god is for us to enter into a loving relationship with god a particular particular god then you know creating most people to live in places where that that's impossible to happen is is just bizarre well you know there are these arbitrary random contingent facts about the time and place you were born they seem to play a significant role in determining our religious beliefs and it seems like a pretty common belief among Christians that those who are worshipping the monkey god Hanuman are not going to be saved. You will not be saved if you're worshipping the half-man, half-monkey deity. It's a much more common belief than any of the alternatives. So the thing is, the people who are worshipping Hanuman, like the reason they're doing that has a lot to do with these arbitrary random facts about when they were born, and if you switched places with that person, 
you would be doing the same thing. So it just seems like if God wills that all are going to be saved, and if you've already accepted this premise, some are going to be saved, some won't be saved, you have to believe the right thing. You know, like you can't be, uh, like you have to be a Christian. You know, you have to be a Christian to get into heaven. That's, a, that's an extremely common belief. Well, then this starts to look pretty disturbing, you know, the, the kind of arbitrariness of, um, you know, the geographical and historical and cultural determinants of religious diversity. There's a mutual exclusivity to these to to religions and religious beliefs, and and if you are born in one particular place, you know, if you're born in Riyadh, chances are you are going to be a Muslim, and if being a Muslim invalidates you from from proper access to the the true God's love and 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 union with that God, then this is a problem. So it turns out that just where you're born appears to dictate uh, whether you have access or not to to God's love, which is incredibly unfair, one would say. You know, John Loftus, John Loftus's book, The Outsider Test for Faith, is, is a really good book. It's one of those books where I thought, I, said, I don't know if you know The Outsider Test for Faith argument. Basically, it says that really, if you want to analyze your own worldview to make sure that you're kind of correct as a christian you need to like look at your christianity from outside of being a christian like you need to assume that you're not a christian and then look inwards to 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 test it anyway you write a whole book on that and it and you think can you write a whole book on that yes you can it's a really really good book and in that he talks about it said this is a quote of his from page 37 to 8 the main problem religious diversity presents us with is that not every religious faith can be true as you said in fact given the number of mutually exclusive religious faiths in the world it's highly likely that the one you inherited in your respective culture is false given the odds alone um he goes on to say robin mckim tells us that it's quote, it's clear, therefore, that large numbers of people have held and now hold false beliefs in the area of religion. At most, one of them can be true. And since so many people hold false beliefs in the area of religion, it would seem, therefore, that all groups need to consider the possibility that their beliefs in this area may be mistaken. Um, Which is to say that most people that have been born on Earth have had the wrong religion have had the wrong belief system over the whole of history of, uh, of time and this then makes you think this prompts a question of what's the point of creating i mean th- in writing this book this is one of the things i kept coming back to which is like why did god create at all and this is actually the first argument i, I start off the book with but but th- these particular arguments say well if you're going to design and create a world that you know most people will be born into a place where they aren't going to access your love why are you doing that what's your end game here yeah no i, I mean it does kind of raise the question especially if you think the stakes are especially high now again i think that you can kind of lower the stakes a little bit and then religious disagreement doesn't seem as disturbing but once you bring in these sort of, you know, widely accepted premises about sort of the consequences of getting the wrong religion, um, that's when this starts to, you know, take the shape of a really powerful argument, I think. And you can give up one of those premises and then throw yourself off to the fringes of Christianity and, you know, become a universalist, which, you know, raises its own problems, as you pointed out earlier. But, I mean, there's this extremely lame counter argument that I wanted to bring up um, that is sometimes raised where it's like, oh, well, you're saying that, you know, if you were born in a different time and place, then you would be a different religion. Well, that applies to us, too. You know, like we probably wouldn't be atheists if we were if we weren't born in the exact time and place that we were born in. And, you know, so our beliefs are geographically and culturally predictable, too. And it's like, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> that's OK. But the, the idea 
is that this data point of geographical and cultural balkanization is better explained by naturalism than by theism. It's more expected on naturalism. People have different social mores, they wear different clothes, they speak different languages, they have different customs, and they have different religious beliefs. But on theism, one of those is not like the other. Oh, and your eternal fate hangs in the balance, you know, no big deal. And yet it seems like it ju- it's just as culturally and geographically determined or influenced as those other things. Absolutely. And, you know, the, as you, you hint at there, this is an abductive argument, uh, sort of which better favours, you know, what does this data better favour theism or atheism? And, and uh, you rightly say, well, this is what not only is it better favour atheism, um, and and I think what's interesting as well is when you look at things like universalism and, and if you say, right, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe, you'll be saved anyway. And it's like, well, what's the point of all these revelatory texts? What's the point of all these moral diktats and, and stuff that, that, that you claim are great about, say, Christianity? If you're saying, right, this is all brilliant and you have to believe all this stuff, apart from you don't have to because everyone gets saved anyway. Uh, then well okay that, okay and then then universities say well okay you're eventually saved but you do have to go through a little bit of pain and suffering first in some kind of hell and it's like okay uh, it's, i don't know it's just sort of bodging the whole thing but um but yeah you're right if 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 the if the outcome if if by getting it wrong you are committed to an eternity of pain and torment in hell then the stakes are high and if if there are so many things that are outside of your control that determine, you know, effectively whether you're going to go to heaven or hell, then that is just unfair. And 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 I, I fail to see any decent arguments really against against these positions, against these claims. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that universalists, they might have I want to, you know, take up the universalist side a little bit here, but I mean I think they might have some resources for for answering those kinds of questions, but maybe it's just another topic. But I, I do think that universalists can believe that God allows people to interact with the divine, like in their own terms, like in terms that they understand through their own cultural windows. But, you know, most people are not universalists. So if you're absolutely married to the idea that some people will receive salvation and others will not, and there's some criteria that you have to satisfy in order to be saved, and belief is typically a crucial part of the criteria, then this data point of geographical balkanization is just utterly baffling and morally abhorrent. You know, like God's apparent carelessness with the eternal fate of millions of souls is just like laughably inconsistent with his alleged nature as a loving being. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I I just come back to this idea that, that, you know, either, either faith in this particular God and, uh, you know, adhering to these particular ritual, uh, cultic rituals are important, in, in which case, you know, it's really important that everyone believes this thing. Like, say, Christianity, right? So, so the 630 laws written into the, into the Hebrew Bible uh, and, you know, all the moral diktats within, within the Bible as a whole if those are really important, then, you know, everyone needs to access that. But if not everyone can access that, then th- you have to submit to the idea that actually they can't be all that important. Because if someone's born in, a, in the Amazon rainforest in 5000 BCE and doesn't have access to any of that kind of revelation, 
that revelation can't be important if that person is not going to be condemned to hell. Now then, so then the problem is for Christians, and people like William Lane Craig answer this by saying, you know, their answer to this problem is by saying, all those people that that didn't have access and don't have access to God's love, the Christian God's love in, in William Lane Craig's case, um, you know, we explain that by these people would have freely rejected God anyway, no matter where they were born in the world and whatever point in time. And so William Lane Craig says that God knows in advance that these people would have rejected God. So front loads all those rejecting souls into those beings, you know, ahead of time. And it's such an obscene claim. I mean, it's, I've got so many problems with this, but primarily, why would God create souls that would freely come to reject God? Why would he knowingly create these, these contingent entities that would freely reject him? And he would know that such that they then end up going to hell or being punished infinitely. It just seems morally abhorrent. Yeah, yeah. The whole idea of like, well, you're right. People have, you know, an uneven, unequal access to the evidence. And like, yeah, it's partially geographically determined, but God knew ahead of time who would repent if presented with the gospel. And he put the people who wouldn't, you know, over there in India, and he put the people who would over here in like Western Europe and stuff. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just predestination. Like, you know, and Christians can convince themselves of some pretty wild things, but even most of them can't stomach predestination. Like, most of them don't want to bite that bullet, but you just can't get away from it if you accept, you know, this sort of reply, you know, like the one that uh, William Lane Craig takes and many other apologists try to take. You know, you just, predestination, it's just kind of, I mean, in a way, I kind of respect Calvinists more because they're just like, yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's no way around it. And then other people try to, you know, dance around the issue. You, you, you're absolutely right. They bite the bullet. And I do, I do respect that because I, you know, you probably know I'm a causal determinist. Uh, and it's the only thing that seems to make sense of, of causality as far as I can work out. But, but yeah, then when you throw in God's like infallible foreknowledge about everything, then it's just like, well, well, how do you get around that? And so, you know, I understand why William Lane Craig, for example, says something like this, because actually their back's against the wall. And what, what option do they have? Because the job of theology is to maintain the Bible in this case as a morally perfect book. So you start here and you work backwards. So if you're starting, you're presupposing the perfection of this revelation right and you're presupposing the perfection of god and jesus and all these entities and then so therefore all data has to align itself with these presuppositions uh, and and that's the job of theology is 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 looking at all the data in the world and seeing how you can manipulate it in order that it fits your presuppositions whereas i like to think that naturalists just start from the bottom and work our way up and I, and I think that top-down versus bottom-up approach is is just the fundamental difference between between Christians, for example, and atheists. Yeah, no, I mean, I think a lot of people went through that exact sort of process in deconversion. Like, they sort of felt like they dumped out the apple cart and started inspecting, you know, beliefs one at a time. Like, to whatever extent that's actually possible, I think a lot of people felt like they went through that sort of process when they started questioning things that they'd always taken for granted. I mean, that's what it felt like for me. Yeah, I mean... This sort of argument, like, I can't, you don't bring up um, the soteriological issues as much, but I can't help it. <laughs> it just, like, it naturally comes out. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, and I also just had to mention that extremely lame attempt at like a self-defeat argument. It's like, well, you probably wouldn't be atheists if you were born somewhere else. It's like, yeah, okay, you've done absolutely nothing to undermine yeah. this argument. <laughs> like, yep, you're probably right. I mean, we are literally arguing that you, you, as you've said already, you know, we are the product of where we're born. So yeah, if I was born in Riyadh, I would not be an atheist. And you know what? That would suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, it's just this point of like geographic balkanization is just more expected on naturalism yeah. than it is where, you know, there's this omniscient, omnipotent being who's trying to communicate um, his revelation and who wants a kind of convergence, you know, because he wants what's best for us. But yeah, I mean, it, like you were saying earlier about starting with the idea, this is like a perfect worldview. Like, I'm pretty sure Christianity is true. And the things that, you know, my pastor says are basically true. And somehow I have to make these things cohere, mm. you know, so non-Christians go to hell for all eternity. And, um, you know, God is loving and just and merciful and good. And somehow I have to make these things fit together. And obviously they don't fit together, but there are like so many different silly things that people say, not because they're stupid or something, but because they're starting with the assumption that Christianity is true or not even the assumption, but they just, they're pretty certain, you know, they have a high degree of confidence in Christianity. And then you point out to them, you know, whatever the problem happens to be with making these views, these, diff these, uh, you know, distinct things cohere. And then they, you know, try to start making it work. And that's when you hear silly things like, you know, the gates of hell are locked from the inside, you know, which kind of implies that, like, you know, you're capable of leaving hell once you're there. You know, once you're there, you can choose to leave. And it's like, okay, well, if that's the case, then there's nobody in hell. <laughs> like, everyone left because the gates are locked from the inside, apparently. But they convince themselves that that somehow wouldn't be the case. I mean, yeah, it's it's just you're absolutely right, and we and we can talk about you know whether you can redeem yourself in hell, and you know when we get on to talk a little bit about hell. But uh, yeah, I was going to say something, but my I've got multiple sclerosis, so I must remind people who are listening. And sometimes things just go out of my head, and I was going to say something to what you were just saying then, and that's annoyed me. But uh, well, there you go. Well, that actually reminds me of how I came across you in the first place. Just earlier this year, I was like taking a long road trip. And just for the people who might not have heard this already, I was listening to Unbelievable, the podcast, like I sometimes do. And you were debating someone about miracles. And um, they were bringing up, I think, like Craig Keener's book, Miracles. And um, they were talking about how there was this case of multiple sclerosis and it seemed to get better, you know, after prayer. It remitted, if you will. And, um, you know, you were just like, okay, well, I have MS and that's just how it works. Like that's the natural course of the disease. Like it's called, you know, relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis, RRMS, because it has these, you know, ups and downs. But anyway, that was very funny. To me. Yeah. So as Jonathan McClatchy, I was like, of all the things you could choose to, uh, to exemplify miracles, like the, re yeah. the relapsing of multiple sclerosis is right in my ballpark. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I did like that. But uh, yes, so, um, you know, uh, there I say, you know, there are basically four options, one of which is universalism, which you mentioned, but th three other options to solve 
the these problems. We kind of talked about this a little bit already. But the three options to solve this kind of unfairness of geographical and historical accident is even though people end up believing the wrong religion, largely outside of their control, they can still access the good stuff, heaven, or somehow some kind of union with the correct God. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe an Amazonian tribes person can still access God in some kind of, you know, non-Christian specific way. Uh, secondly, God rearranges the world such that the soul of the person who is not able to access the correct God is already known by God to be a soul that would freely reject it. So this is a William Lane Craig option, then God front loads them. And then the third option is God really did give secret individual revelations to those people born in the wrong times and places. So it's all okay, really. Um, and it, like, but that's that's what you've got to do is you've, you've got to oh that's what i was going to say earlier so so the idea of the, the as i've said already the theologian or the christian has to try and smash this stuff together and, and work out a way that this stuff up here the the bible and jesus and god remain morally perfect but then as soon as they sometimes they just can't do it right and they just like i can't make this work and then they just go skeptical theism yeah, it's all right. You know, God moves in a mysterious way, and you, you, ways, and you know this very well. I mean, you've—I I just quoted your your article podcast in my latest piece on Only Sky on skeptical theism because uh, you did a really, I think, a really nice succinct piece on that. And uh, and it's just, it's just, or it's the fallback all the time. It's so ubiquitous, which is like, oh, you know, we can't understand why that happened. We can't understand the mind of God, or we don't understand the mind of God. Um, and so, but there could be a reason. And, and that's it. End of conversation. There could be a reason. I don't know what it is. There you go. I honestly shouldn't even talk about it because we're live right now. And I can't, I have to like plan out what I'm going to say about skeptical theism. It just has this like unique power of like making me more frustrated than like most ideas in uh, philosophy of religion. But um, so, you know, like I said, we've kind of been um, touching on this already, but to move on to the next two arguments, um, these first three are basically about, you know, fairness. We have an un- uneven distribution of evidence of cognitive capacities to assess the evidence, of genetic and psychological inclinations towards certain beliefs. And, you know, these factors seem to play a significant role, among other things, in our eternal fate. (laughs) So um, let's talk about doubting Thomas, you know, in in regards to unfair levels of evidence. I love this one. This is really good. Uh, You know, as as an argument, I think it's pretty powerful. And, um, And it's exactly the same sort of argument, really, unfair level of evidence. But instead of, like... Um, or you you could you could say it's like a subset of geography and time to some degree, but essentially different people around the world are afforded different levels of evidence, right? And so you think, well, what 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 am I given? I'm given a two thousand year old book that I don't really know the provenance of, and uh, these are like not primary sources. They are not first hand claims. They're non eyewitness accounts etc 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 and i'm supposed to believe all this stuff uh, and have faith in in that this god exists and this stuff happened okay fair enough right and then i then i look at supposedly if you if you believe the gospels you look at doubting thomas so thomas was was a a, a disciple of of jesus you know one of the apostles and he uh he hung around with jesus for a bunch of time saw jesus do some crazy amazing stuff uh was crucified on the cross resurrected and it was like yeah i don't really believe that that's you resurrected right and it's like hang on thomas haven't you been like 
hanging around for the last bunch of you've seen him turn water into wine you've seen him resurrect lazarus right all this stuff is like yeah and he's in front of you like you can see him he's like yeah no i don't i don't believe it and so jesus goes well just poke my holy hands and then thomas pokes his hands and he goes oh it turns out it's true right i know obviously being facetious here but but the idea is that that thomas is given a level of evidence that i haven't got the remotest chance of getting anywhere near. I mean, this is a phenomenal amount of evidence. And, and Thomas was not going to believe, right, until he got to touch Jesus' hand. And now he's a saint in heaven, supposedly. <laughs> and you're like, hang on, like he, 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 he was going to reject you and then you let him touch you. Like, I don't get that. You don't let no. me touch you, Jesus. <laughs> this is all sounding really weird. But, um, but, uh, but and it, this just, you know, that's an example of, of the range of evidence. But you're going to get, all ranges in between that. And then you'll get different levels of belief given the same range, right? Given the same amount of evidence. So you, so it, let me just quote from my book because it, I explain it better here than my stupid mind will do now. Uh, so from page 61, I say, the only way God could deal with the potential unfairness is by having some kind of metric for judgment that allows for everyone's causal circumstance to be taken into account. Person X believed in God 69%, but only with 32% evidential basis. But what of person Y, who believed 90% on evidential basis, 12%? And how about person Z, who believed on 15%, but only had 2% evidential basis on all combinations thereof. In, in other words, you, you get all these different combinations of, of or strength of belief in God with all these different amounts of evidence. And you've got to try and make sense of that, of, of like well, who, who gets into heaven on that and who doesn't, or who gets a pat on the back and who doesn't. And, uh, and it seems like the only way out of this is to create some really complicated matrix calculations to say uh, but but then the the problem still exists is that some people are not afforded the same amount of evidence as other people and that is just prima facie unfair and 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 you know i'd like to i'd like to to have a good explanation of of why that is fair right and i think we've already addressed the whole objection of like well, perfect evidence, even with really great evidence, you still wouldn't believe, so God didn't give it to you. Like, I feel, I feel like we already addressed that, so I won't uh, cover that same ground here. But, yeah, I mean, if I had as much evidence as Doubting Thomas, I would uh, believe. <laughs> you know, it's like, I would definitely believe in Jesus. I actually wouldn't take as much convincing, I think, as he took. But, um, you know, some people say that it, it takes away our freedom to give us really powerful evidence there. Yeah, so that's I guess the answer had... to the cross on the moon. So why yeah, doesn't yeah. God put a cross on the moon? Because it takes away our freedom. Yeah, but he allowed Thomas to touch his hands. He took Thomas's freedom away, I guess. <laughs> but still, it's like, you know, I, I just, I reject that answer just in and of itself, though. I mean, the idea that giving people informed consent takes away their freedom is exactly backwards. Like, if you don't let people know what they're getting into, or you don't really tell people the consequences of their actions, you know, consent is very shallow in that sense. So, like, if you don't really know what's happening, if you don't know the consequences of your beliefs or your actions, and this is kind of in the background, we're kind of assuming that, like, what you believe matters, <laughs> you know, because that's a pretty standard belief among theists that, like, it actually matters what you believe. It doesn't, you know, it's not irrelevant to um, what, what, what ends up happening to you. But the thing is, it doesn't remove your freedom to give you more information. It gives you more freedom. Like, if that's the whole point. That's why the term informed consent even exists. Like, if you sign on something and you don't really know what you're signing to, 
that's only a free choice in a very superficial sense. But if you have a thorough understanding of what you're getting into, then that's a, a free choice in a much deeper sense. So they're saying that, like, well, in order to respect our freedom, God removes any possibility of informed consent, which is just exactly and, backwards. Yeah, which is advocating for blind faith, which you can argue is kind of evidence in some of the gospel tracts. But um, I think it might be worth mentioning something called doxastic voluntarism here. So doxastic voluntarism is super important, I would claim, in, in conversations of this, which is, you know, actually, we don't choose to believe anything. Like we believe, given um, a certain threshold of evidence and rationality, that 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 is met, that our non-conscious brains go, "Yep, that's enough." Or I believe then. So we don't like choose. Like if I said to you, "The moon is made of cheese," I would like you to believe that. You couldn't go, "All right, then, the moon is made of cheese." I now believe that. Like right. you can't just make yourself believe something. So I would have to present you enough evidence and that would have to be a huge amount of evidence for you to, to actually go, right, there's a threshold that's been met. I now believe that. But that threshold is not something that you choose like consciously. It's a kind of a non-conscious thing. So this is the idea of doxastic voluntarism, the idea that you can voluntarily believe something or doxastic involuntarism. And that's really, really important to understand in order to understand how beliefs work psychologically i guess yeah um and but there's something else and i bring this in into the chat i i have i've had many long protracted debates with uh, a christian apologist called dave armstrong who's a catholic apologist and my goodness <sighs> mm -hmm. that's, my, that's my reaction to many catholic apologists yeah, yeah. so um so one of the he picked me up, i wrote a whole bunch on the doubting thomas like the unfairness le, unfair levels of evidence and he's like he said but everyone has sufficient levels of evidence to believe and i called him out on this and he basically just had had nothing in the end because he just didn't didn't understand what sufficient meant right and it's it's what he was ending up doing is projecting his amount of evidence that he's got and he believes so therefore if everyone's got access to that evidence they should all believe like ignoring the fact that not everyone's got that same amount of access to that evidence and ignoring the fact that everyone's brains and lives are completely different and so therefore and the way i explain it is is by saying so what he would say is like hey if you have five liters of gas five liters of petrol that's enough to get to get your car from Port from Fairham to Portsmouth. I live in a place called Fairham. There's enough gas to get you from Fairham to Portsmouth. And I say, well, yeah, if I put it in in my Ford Focus, then yeah, that'll get me to from Fairham to Portsmouth. But if I put it in my Humvee, right, that's gonna get me like two miles down the road and run out. And if I put it in in my other car that's got a hole in the gas tank, then it's not gonna get me to Portsmouth. And if I'm gonna pour it all over my bicycle, then that's not gonna get me to uh, to Portsmouth. And so what you're doing is you're saying five liters of fuel is 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 sufficient to get you from here to Portsmouth. Well, no, because it depends what you what vehicle you are loading that into, uh, and it's a combination of those two things that gets you from here to Portsmouth. And it's the same with beliefs. So it's like you know you can give me a certain amount of evidence, but if you're pouring it into my brain and it that's the sort of brain that's not that five liters of of evidence isn't good enough then I'm not going to believe in God. So everyone's different and everyone has different, um, you know, uh, causal circumstances that means that different levels of evidence are will be sufficient for each individual to believe in any given thing. 
like the same amount of that evidence. So, for example, another example, and sorry, I'm talking a lot here, uh, Emerson, but another example is like, okay, if you gave a conspiracy theorist a bunch of evidence that the moon landings were false, right, just a nominal amount of evidence, and the conspiracy theorist jumps on it saying, yeah, that's sufficient for me to believe. If you presented that same amount of evidence to a NASA scientist who literally worked on the moon landings, then... Or, or, or the child of a, a scientist who worked on the moon landings, who, who is himself, uh, uh, a uh, you know, cosmo- cosmological scientist or whatever, then that amount of evidence will not be good enough for them to believe that the moon landings were false. So, you, not everyone has sufficient evidence. I mean, that's obviously true because not everyone believes. So. Y- the idea is that people bastardize the understanding of sufficient, sufficient for you, Dave Armstrong, but not sufficient for everyone else. Yeah. Sorry, rant over. <laughs> no, I mean, I agree. I think that actually transitions nicely into the third uh, sort of related argument about different capacities for assessing the evidence. I think that can, I add, really- can I add one more thing, though? Sorry, mm-hmm. before we get onto that, I just want to talk about the, the teacher analogy I use in the book. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. So, and I'm going to read from the book again. Sorry, I do apologize. Uh, page 63 for anyone that cares. Um, so, and, and I say, and I can supposedly go to hell based on whether I choose to believe that very low level biblical evidence, let's call it 5%. Um, yet, St. Thomas the Apostle gets a stroll through the pearly gates. Uh, one assumes on the back of not believing, assuming the Gospels are hit. Uh, um, sorry, Gospels are true here, even though he is presented with a level of, say, 85%, and Jesus then reversing this unbelief in the resurrection, Jesus' divinity, and the whole atonement idea, not that Thomas actually would have understood this at the time, I wager, by getting Thomas to poke him and raising the evidential threshold to 95%. Note I am making up these figures to illustrate my point. The Christian believer could counter that different people react differently to different levels of evidence and concoct some kind of... Um, uh, some kind of counter-apologetic. My general point would be, yes, all sorts of people will react differently to the same level of evidence, and all sorts of people get to different levels of evidence. It's all a bit of an unfair mess. Time for another analogy. Imagine I have a class of 30 children to whom I give a test. All 30 children have different brains, knowledge bases, abilities, and thresholds, etc. I give them a test of 100 questions and, de- and declare that the children who fail to get 70 out of 100 will get detention. That means hell right? A children who get 70 will get a special treat, heaven. Uh, I then give them a test, except I also give out different cheat sheets to everyone, ranging from zero points of help to 95 points. Each child either gets no extra help or gets some kind of leg up to getting closer to that 70-point success. Some people, like little Thomas, get a cheat sheet with answers worth 95 points. Lucky him. Poor Alice, who is not very clever due to her genetics and troublesome environment, gets a cheat sheet with zero points of help and gets 16 out of 100 and gets detention. We could actually make this more sinister or accurate. Some children even get trickster cheat sheets, like our Saudi student, Mo, who gets a sheet that actually tells him wrong answers and leaves him with 35 points less than he would have got on his own. He gets 50 and receives a dissension. Perhaps as a teacher, I actually take, you know, and so on and so forth. The idea is that if if you, if this is all a test, right, which is bizarre anyway, because God knows mm-hmm. in advance the answer, who's going to pass the test. So as a teacher, you would never, never, you're, you're testing people because you don't know what they know, right? So that's what you do as a teacher. But if God's 
testing people. God knows what they know anyway. So testing is kind of a weird concept. But um, if he then gives out cheat sheets that disadvantage people, uh, and and then while they're doing the test, it's actually prodding them with a cattle prod. You know, we can bring in a problem of evil here. Is it's not only are oh, am, am I going to give you a test and give you a, a sheet that has the incorrect answers that is going to make you more likely to go to hell, but I'm going to give you cancer while you're doing. It. And you're like uh, the whole thing just becomes a, a just an incoherent mess and i just like that uh, that that teacher's analogy and i do take it a bit further but we we spent enough time on this but no no I, I like the teacher analogy because i mean if we add to that that the teacher is supposed to be just you know and, and loving and basically good then the whole thing just kind of decoheres you know like maybe you're kind of an asshole teacher or something it's like well yeah i, I don't like this whole cheat sheet scenario but you know you but the thing is, once we establish that the teacher in this scenario is just, let alone like, you know, perfectly just or identical with goodness itself or something like that, that's when the pieces just don't fit together. Like, this is obviously not what's happening. And I would add, just for the sake of adding it once again, like, you as a Christian could potentially agree with everything that we're saying, you know, potentially. Again, it'll throw you off to the margins of Christianity, and people are going to start hitting that not a real Christian buzzer pretty quickly. But, you know, you could potentially be a Christian and say, yeah, actually, it doesn't make sense that a just and merciful and good and loving God would distribute these, um, you know, this uneven level of evidence and judge us on the basis of our beliefs. That's a bizarre criterion to judge us according to, like, which beliefs did you acquire during your lifetime? You know, and now I'm going to reward or punish you based on it. Like, it's just, it's just such a brain-dead worldview, but it's, it's not necessary. You can be a Christian and reject that, is what I'm saying. You don't have to accept this very popular <laughs> worldview where it's like, you are kind of judged in part on this criterion of which beliefs you adopt. Oh, and by the way, there are uneven levels of evidence, uneven capacities to assess the evidence. And then, you know, so on and so forth. I, th I think the, the only fair option for Omnigod designing and creating all humanity from nothing is to give everyone the same chance at heaven or hell. And when we control for causal circumstances, this translates to the same score, right? So really, God has to make it fair. And actually, so this is something I've talked about outside of the whole God debate, um, which is equality of opportunity. So when I'm, I, I, I want to write a paper one day on how, true equality of opportunity so you're talking about political justice here and social justice and all, all these ideas like if you want everyone to have equality of opportunity access to x y and z then actually what you have to do is make everyone's environments the same and actually make their entire biology is the same if you really truly want to give everyone equality of opportunity and that's a really bizarre place to go because actually you're making the entire world homogenous uh, and 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 that is the that's actually actually I can't see a way around this. It's kind of like yes, I want equality of opportunity for everyone, but in recognizing that, actually, I'm striving for everyone living in the same causal circumstance and ba basically being identical. And that is just obviously thoroughly problematic. But actually, you know, realistically, uh, maybe maybe this is a defense a Christian can say, which is if God was to make it truly equal for everyone, then everyone would have to be identical and have exactly the same causal circumstance. Now, the only way you can get around this, I think, is to give a graduated outcome, which is to say that it isn't binary in heaven and hell, but there is some kind of spectrum of heaven and hell. And however you do on earth, and you go through some kind of 
calculated computation, some complex computation that takes into account all of your earthly life and all the opportunities and all the evidence you're given. And then you, you go through that function machine and it throws out some answer. And then you go into, right, you, you get the 62% heaven, you get the 92% heaven, you get the 33% hell. And th that's the only way I could understand it. But quite why God would want to do that, knowing in advance all the outcomes anyway, is kind of weird. Like, yeah. we get back to why create at all. But do you know what I mean? Do, do I, am I, I, making I do. Sense I just, I, I think that you're making sense as long as you, like most Christians, are unwilling to move this piece of saying, look, some will be saved and others will not be. <laughs> like, you know, some people are going to burn and <laughs> I will be damned before I let go of that belief. That seems to be where a lot of Christians are. So, yeah, I feel like things do get kind of absurd pretty quickly. Like, if you really try to hold on to that belief, you either have to believe incoherent things or you have to invent like a, a kind of crazy system like uh like the one that you just invented um you know to tr just try to have some semblance of fairness <laughs> where it yeah. doesn't just feel like horrifically uh you know unjust but um i uh i've been um impotently trying to transition to this next argument <laughs> now so i'm just yeah. going to <laughs> We're, we're talking about Jonathan, we're talking about the next argument we're talking about <laughs> um uneven uh distribution of capacities to assess the evidence so um this is in the chapter where you say like some people are still more likely to believe in others and that's not fair you talk about like autism for instance and like the uh the difference in proclivities between men and women and I would also add just like some of the genetic data that we've gathered from twin studies where you have these identical twins who are reared apart, you know, separated at birth. And um, it's just really interesting how their religious beliefs tend to correlate, like their degree of religiosity seems to track, you know, so you have these identical twins raised in different environments and, you know, their, their levels of religiosity correlate. Sometimes they're in environments where there are different religions um, that predominate. So there was one pair of identical twins that separated at birth. One went to Poland and the other one, went, the other one went to Trinidad, you know, they didn't know about each other. And, um, one of them became an extremely devout Jew in Trinidad and the other one became an extremely devout Catholic in Poland. So it's like they adopted the religion of their environment, but they matched each other in religiosity. And, you know, this seemed to track, uh, with most of the other identical twins who were reared apart as well, which strongly suggests that there's a genetic component to your degree of religiosity which you know of course you have no control over your genes which is just this is just yet another example of how there are things that are outside your control that are determining your eternal fate you know you just can't seemingly get away from predestination yeah and and yes yeah, so this is what you again what you predict on naturalistic atheism you, that's what you predict uh, and in fact, it's also, I know Dean Hamer, I think it was Dean Hamer, got a lot of hassle for like the God gene. And I think it was misinterpreted and misrepresented quite a lot. But the idea that, that our, you know, our phenotypes aren't going to have, you know, which is, uh, our genotype will produce, our, our genetic code will produce our behaviours, essentially. Uh, the idea that our behaviours aren't going to dictate our levels of religiosity uh, is it? absurd that that wouldn't be the case um so it seems to me obvious that that there would be some kind of genetic component to belief in, in some way um and so that's completely unsurprising and yeah 
as you say, it's just another example of the unfairness uh, argument. Um, so what I talk about in the chapter predominantly is is certain autistic people. Uh, so, for example, uh, it's it, um, it a great paper by uh, Will Gervais, who I'm going to interview myself actually soon, uh, and Naren Zayan, uh, I think, uh, and maybe someone else as well, um, uh, talking about mentalizing deficits. So about... Um, uh, certain people, certain people on the autistic spectrum will have, uh, they suggest an inability to do intersubjectivity, which is to kind of like imagine uh, yourself in someone else's shoes, right? So if if you have an inability to do that genetically or whatever, then if you, if you can't imagine how it would feel to be someone else, then actually you're going to really struggle to 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 imagine what someone else thinks of you right which means that that well actually that's a really important component in religious belief which is well, what does god think about me now oh my god i've done this what, what if you if you struggle to be able to think about another entity thinking back at you then you're going to be inhibited from believing in a personal God. And so it turns out that actually certain autistic, uh, the autistic spectrum is huge, right? And very, very diverse, but, but certain autistics are, uh, or autistic people, depending on how you, how you use the term, um, will, are far less likely to believe in a personal God than a neurotypical person. Uh, and so straight away, you've got a subset of people who are less likely to believe in God than, an, than another subset of people. That's unfair. Uh, men are, are less likely to believe in God than women. Uh, and the point here is it doesn't really matter what the reason is. Like, I really couldn't give a monkey's what the reason is, whether it's genetic, whether it's environmental, whether it's genes and environment, nature, nurture, whatever. Right. It doesn't really matter because people are born into certain situations where they're less likely to believe in God than other people. Right. That's not fair. Right, right. And most, I mean, no one thinks that belief in God is sufficient for salvation, but most people do think it's necessary. You know, most Christians don't think that atheists have a chance at going to heaven. Um, some do, but uh, it would be nice if, if Christians did all switch to that belief. That would be an, that would be an improvement. There's no clarity there. I mean, this is a really, this is a whole other several hours of discussion, but like, there's no clarity in what gets you to heaven. Like, is it, is it faith? Is it faith or is it works and deeds or is it both? And, and it, ha it can't be one to the exclusion of the other. So it can't just be faith. Otherwise just believing in, in God, uh, uh, but then being a complete and utter bastard and uh, may, maybe a megalomaniacal, like genocide, genocidal dictator. But hey, I've got faith in Jesus. Well, that's not going to be good enough. But then, you know, doing good deeds all your life, but not having faith in Jesus renders like the whole idea of faith in Jesus is completely meaningless and pointless. Like, well, if you can get into heaven without believing in, in God or Jesus or anything in the Bible, then what's the point of the Bible? You know, we don't need it, but it, it becomes impotent. And so you can't have one or the other. So therefore, really, it's going to be some kind of combination of faith and being good, um, it seems to me. Uh, but if, if, if someone's invalidated from either being good, interestingly, like you can have um, genetic components that will, I mean, there's an absolutely phenomenal book called uh, the Anatomy of Violence by Adrian Rain. It's one of the best books I've ever read. And it talks about the biosocial jigsaw, uh, about what makes you, um, what determines you in being, you know, antisocial uh, and, and, and committed to antisocial behavior. Uh, so 
we can talk about faith being determined genetically or environmentally, and we can talk about behavior, you know, moral behavior being determined in the same way. Either or, like, that's unfair. If God's creating a world knowingly in advance and designing that world such that this takes place, then God is unfair. Yeah, and, and I mean, the point being that, I mean, the reason we keep talking about fairness is because God is alleged to be a just being. So, I mean, something's got to give here. Like, and if you can't make it fit together, then maybe it's not true. But something's got to move here. Either God's not just or something has gone wrong in your reasoning and you need to retrace your steps a little bit. 100% agree, yeah. And actually, I have argued with with uh, more of a fringe nut job uh, Christian uh, who, who has argue, tried to argue that actually God doesn't need to be fair. And, and I like that was an interesting take. But I, I I couldn't see how he he really got there, you know. And it's almost it's almost that same sort of argument that you often come across, which is like God has the right, sovereign right to take anyone's life. So he could, genocide is not a problem because God has that right. It's like really, and then it's like God's not a moral agent because God doesn't have obligations and duties. And then it's like oh my mm-hmm. goodness, will it? And then you get back to William Lane Craig. I, I mean, David Bentley Hart in his book that all shall be saved was kind of talking about this i was just reading that book um earlier and anyway i would just highly recommend it there's there's so much interesting stuff in there but um, my mate my mate swears by that he's a he's become a real big christian universalist but he loves david bentley hart well it's weird it's been kind of surreal to be reading that book and just hear a christian say like almost verbatim things that i've said in the past like things i say now things i said like as a teenager when i was like deconverting and stuff i don't know it's just been weird like seeing a christian kind of say like no you're not crazy you're totally right about this um and uh but we can still try to make it work so i think that's part of why i'm like increasingly sympathetic to universalism where i'm just like oh there is a form of christianity where uh they don't believe this um you know concatenation of totally contradictory things actually paul jenkins my friend paul jenkins in the uh, in the live chat has said didn't the pope say some time ago that some atheists will go to heaven uh, which is an interesting idea you know obviously some theologians need to kind of get around the idea that uh, that hell is a pretty nasty idea and that if you're committing like say for example in in the uk where we're like 52 percent non-religious at the moment or something like that if you're just suddenly committing half the population to hell then you know some something's got to give there god doesn't look particularly all loving and and you know hats off to the pope if you said that which is like you know we've got to try and do but then it, again we get back to the well then faith doesn't really matter well I, as, as i understand it, the catholic church has been making it harder and harder for people to get themselves sent to eternal hell but um you know, I, I mean, like I said, I would welcome these changes. Like, if if Christians suddenly all believed that, they believed that um, Hindus and atheists and Muslims can go to heaven, then I would welcome that change. And their worldview would make more sense, okay? Like, so anyway, if you do happen to already believe, if, you, if the Pope indeed said that and you agree with the Pope, then great. What, you should be on our side, <laughs> you know, arguing against all the Christians who are misleading people, you know, and uh, giving people inaccurate information and giving them bad news. So, yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about hell now? 
Um, well, I mean, it's the whole notion of the the binary outcome of heaven and hell is, as as we've already touched on a couple of times, is really, really problematic um, for so many reasons. And like I spend quite a few chapters and arguments talking about heaven and hell and how problematic they are. Are, but the, I mean, the one you've picked out is is probably the quickest one, luckily, uh, which is like infinite punishment for finite crimes, and and that seems just uh, straight away not right. There's something intuitively wrong with the idea that hey, you, like people don't understand how long eternity is. Well, that's the first thing. Like people don't oh understand. Oh my god, how, yeah. People, people just throw that word around. They don't know what it means. Yeah. Like if you if you try and explain a billion to someone, like but I wrote a piece recently on on, on the defence of billionaires when people like economically try and defend billionaires, and it's like, do you know how much a billion is? Like if if you earn, and I think the figures are something like five thousand or ten thousand dollars a day. If you earn five, say five thousand dollars a day from fourteen ninety two, or what is it fourteen eighty two? When was the new world found? Whenever fourteen eighty two to to now. Was it 1492? Thank you. I mean, it's, it's the colonies. I'm not, not too bothered. But um, <laughs> so, <laughs> joke. Uh, so uh, if, if you earn $5,000 a day from 1492 to now, right, you would still not have a billion dollars, right? That's $5,000 every single day, every single week, every single month from 1492 to now. And you still earn less than Jeff Bezos does in a week. It's still a earned lesson. And it's just like, okay, so you don't understand how big a billion is, all right? And a billion is tiny. So the idea of, like, infinity infinity, is, is the, ev- the biggest number you can possibly think of. So the biggest number you can conceptually imagine is an infinitesimal compared to infinity because you can always multiply that by itself a gazillion trillion times and then that answer by and you go on and on and on so the biggest number you can ever think of is like the smallest spe- is not even a spec it, it is what's called an infinitesimal fraction of of an infinite so the point here is that infinity is a really long time <laughs> like eternity- you actually can't exaggerate how long it is <laughs> literally literally can't like uh so 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 it's just worth dwelling on that for a bit because people you're right they throw around our oh, eternity in heaven that's great actually eternity in heaven is going to be damn boring unless you get to reset your entire existence infinite times like um and there is a, the, this argument there's philosophical boredom associated with heaven but um but if you're going to do something wrong on earth, even if it is a really terribly heinous thing, uh, and, and, and then you, and you might say, well, why would such a person do those things? And you start looking at causal circumstances, their genes and their environment, blah, 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 and all that. And you say, okay, but they still done a really bad thing. Uh, and you're like, right, you're now committed to hell for eternity. And, and the issue is, is that on a lot of understandings of hell, there is no way of getting out of there, right? You're in hell for eternity, which means there's no redemptive uh, quality to hell. There's no kind of learning. Like when we punish people now, when we punish our children, the idea is what we're doing is so you don't do it again. So you learn from this. So you become a better person, right? But when we talk about hell, you are punishing for none of those things because you're in there forever. 
unless you're a person who believes actually you can get out of hell. And But then, you know, oh, whatever. There are so many different, different understandings of heaven right. and hell. But you'll somehow just willingly stay there because the gates are locked from the inside and just your pride will just keep you there. You'll... <laughs> I don't know. It's wild. Yeah, and there are certain theories that people would continue sinning in hell, like as if you can't. Like this is the worst thing in human conception. I know what I'll do. I'll just continue being a complete idiot and then uh, perpetuate my existence in hell because I'm loving it so much. So, who would do that? And some people, like again, in response to this, they'll kind of say, "Well." Look, there's no literal fire, you know, or it's like, it's more like the great divorce, like C.S. Lewis said or something, you know, and it's like, okay, well, that's not what a lot of Christians believe. And if you believe that, then I welcome that as progress. Okay, now can you please start spreading the word so we can stop terrifying and psychologically terrorizing children and giving them phobias until they become adults and then send me emails and DMs about how they still have this irrational fear of hell because it was indoctrinated into them as a kid. And, you know, I mean, some fears are are irrational. Phobias are irrational. And it's like, they're like, look, I'm not pretending to be an atheist, but like, I am sometimes, like, sometimes this fear and anxiety will come over me um, because I'm, there's, there are moments where I become afraid of hell again. And um, I'm just sick of getting those messages. Like, I, it would be nice if people didn't teach that to children, you know, that they're going to be tormented for all of eternity. Um, with literal fire and torture, basically. And um, yeah, so if you don't believe that, then I think it's sort of your responsibility to spread the news about that. If you think that's like a false teaching in Christianity, then uh, you you need to work on your PR skills, because that's a pretty widespread belief right now. And it's actually, I mean, first of all, if you think it's untrue, then there are these falsehoods being taught in the name of Jesus, which should be disturbing to you in and of itself. But there are also all these terrible consequences. And then there are people like me who become atheists in part because of it. So, I mean, you have all the reason in the world to uh, try to correct other people and bring them closer to, you know, annihilationism or eternal conscious discomfort or whatever C.S. Lewis believed. But annihilationism is still, you still, okay, you are taking out the torment part but you still have this binary idea of like some 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 people get really rewarded and other people don't oh it's still incoherent don't get yeah. me wrong it's still yeah, yeah, indefensible yeah. but it's better than a torture chamber that never yeah. ends <laughs> because again to go back to the divine foreknowledge idea that if god is creating does literally designing humans in such a way that he knows that they will do the wrong thing yeah, you know, it's a whole Adam and Eve. You can talk about it in Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve knowing that they would eat from the fruit of, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, but he creates, designs them and creates them in that way anyway, such that they do that. Then how can he punish them for doing that? Like he's the one that created them and designed them in such a way that he knew they would do that. So the same goes for all of humanity. Like if God has divine foreknowledge and knows who will screw up, then even if even if you believe in annihilationism or eternal torture, it's the same thing. But God is designing and creating a whole But Most people, uh, according to the Bible, most people will not access heaven. So most people, God knows, will uh, not get the reward. And if he knows that in advance, he is creating them such that that happens, which means he is creating them to get that, that outcome, which makes God morally abhorrent Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and a lot of Christians would agree with you if you put it in those terms, because a lot of Christians agree that predestination is morally abhorrent. Like, they really can't stomach it. And then once you, like you're pointing out, divine foreknowledge really does just cause all these problems where it seems like once you accept that particular premise, you're kind of stuck with um, predestination in some form or another. I think I think the natural, the necessary corollary of divine foreknowledge is that God is a complete bastard. Like <laughs> there, there is honestly, like I, there is no other way. I so I like go back to what I said at the beginning. I understand why some modern theologians are opting for open theism because it's the only way to get God off the hook from being like morally reprehensible. It, it's just really incoher- incoherent and doesn't work. But so no, this, this was the whole point of, of my hell episode where I was saying like, look, however sure you are that some people will be saved and others won't. And the ones who won't are going to, you know, suffer for all of time. Okay. So I get it. You're very sure of that, but you're probably comparatively more sure that God is good and loving and just and merciful. So let's just explore how these things are um, obviously in conflict. And if something's got to give, it's not going to be that God is good, right? It's going to be the other thing. So, yeah, I mean, people are being driven to open theism. Rightly, if I was a Christian, I'd have to be an open theist because, yeah. it's, like you said, it's the only thing that gets God off the hook, or in other words, you know, preserves his his attributes, you know, which are more solid than any doctrine of divine foreknowledge. Yeah, I, I suppose you would want God to be all loving more than you'd want God to be have divine foreknowledge you know that's a preferable thing obviously and so yeah so i would be i would be an open theistic universalist if i was a christian that that i i think that's a no-brainer for me in other words not a real christian i'd be picking and choosing what i want god to be because but then you know is that a valid way to go you know if if that makes the most sense then surely if there is going to be god is that not the god that there would be i don't know uh, yeah. You know, it seems an invalid way to 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 work towards like a truth, maybe like picking and choosing. But is that maybe the best way to do it? I, I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here. That's a, that's a thought. Maybe I should keep to my own head. I did, I did want to say one thing about um, kind of a lame response to the infinite punishment for finite crimes thing. You mm-hmm. know, as as I'm saying, like God's justice is kind of the thing that we're working with here and um infinite punishment for finite crime is disproportionate you know so it's unjust so if god is just he's not overseeing or facilitating or superintending over any process that involves everlasting torment because that would be disproportionate and unjust god is just so that's not happening like i mean it's it's actually not that complicated for me it's just these things are obviously not compatible, one of them's got to give, and it's not going to be God's justice, so that's the one that wins out in this little conflict. But there is this kind of lame little response where they try to, like, keep it alive. You mentioned it in the book of, well, it's, it's a, okay, they're finite crimes, you might think, but they're crimes against an infinite being, which makes them infinite crimes. And, you know, I mean, that's just word game nonsense. Like, it's also, okay, it's a crime against an infinite being. It's also a crime against a Trinitarian being. So are my crimes now Trinitarian in nature? Like it's it's just word game nonsense. Like it's it's incredibly lame. I think it's yeah, it is exactly that. It's a it's a soundbite that that sounds good, but what does it really mean? And and if if God is creating you in a way that again we're back to the foreknowledge thing that, that He knows that you're going to create this crime, then who who's responsible for that infinite crime anyway? 
you know, I, I go back to, and sorry, I'm going to like the, I'll give you the analogies I give in a book and I often give in, in videos, which, which is the scientist analogy and the, and the car CEO analogy, which is if you, um, Emerson, you are an eminent scientist working in a lab and you create out of nothing these sentient beings, right? And you know, at the design stage, you know 100% they're going to they're going to go and do some pretty awful things, rape and pillage and just be morally abhorrent, right? A couple of them might do nice things and you know this in advance, but you, you create them anyway and you create them in these test tubes and these sentient beings are created for nothing and well done you, you're amazing scientists and then they go out into the, into the town and they rape and pillage a couple of them to give to charity and do nice things but the majority of them rape and pillage right surely if the the police would come to your door surely you would be morally culpable in some way that even if they freely went and did that if you knew in advance that they would do that and you at the design stage knew that they would do that and designed them such that they did that and created them anyway knowing that they would do that you would be in some way morally culpable for what they did even if they did it freely if that makes any sense anyway and likewise if you were a car designer and ceo car company designer and ceo right and you designed a car that you knew would would go wrong and crash but you designed and created it anyway and then you sent it out into the into the marketplace and it did that you would be morally culpable for that you would be sued in a court of law rightly so uh, and then for you to then say and i demand payment for that crashed car that i designed mm -hmm. to crash this is atonement i designed i demand some kind of payment for the for the um imperfection of that car is is doubly nonsensical so all of the all of this makes you know the designing designer created god morally culpable for all the the things that go wrong because god is ultimately sovereign supposedly and yeah it just makes it all a big hot mess yeah. I mean, sometimes I use this term, you know, ultimately responsible just to try to yes. signify that, you know, yeah, I recognize God is not directly responsible for a lot of the things um, that humans do or the biological order, for instance. So you might try to put some distance between God and teleological evil, which is the final argument that we'll be talking about. Um, but God is still ultimately responsible. You know, it's sort of like, like you said, like a CEO trying to be like, well, I didn't do that. It's just um, some people who I put in charge, you know, who I knew, you know, I knew they were going to do that. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, you are responsible, you know, like it's just kind of this weird, like shirking of responsibility to try to say, well, that had nothing to do with me. <laughs> it's like, no, clearly God is ultimately responsible for, you know, the biological order and for human nature and, and so on and so forth. Plus, if you start denying that, you're going to have to start giving up teleological arguments. If you want to start giving up God's designing role in the world, then I don't see how you can just sort of pick and choose where it's like, well, yeah, God is responsible for the biological order. We can infer that God exists from, you know, arguments that have to do with intelligent design and so forth. And also he's not responsible for the biological order. And that's why there's teleological evil. Like you can't really have it both ways. Uh, Neil, uh, Neil Milan in the, in the live chat saying starting to pick and choose was a stepping stone to my atheism. Yeah. I think when you realize when you have the self-awareness to understand that you are just cherry picking your way through religious belief, I think that, that, that is a good sign that you're, that you're, uh, doing the wrong thing. Um, I just, can I just quote again, just the last thing on the infinite, finite, infinite thing. Um, so I talked about, you know, uh, 
the only vaguely reasonable attempts to answer why an infinite punishment is appropriate for a finite crime are as follows. One, the finite crime is a sin against an infinite being, as you said. And two, you continue to sin in hell. Uh, the first answer sounds nice, but I'm not sure it really makes any sense to me. And it makes no more sense if reversed and applied to good deeds in heaven. Do finite good deeds really deserve infinite reward? A further problem to the eternal nature of reward punishment is that it fails to account for the differences in misdemeanors. Genocidal Hitler infinitely sins against God and receives eternal punishment, so does someone stealing a loaf of bread or any level of wrongdoing in between. In fact, since all humans are sinners in one way or another, all humans have infinitely sinned against God, from Mother Teresa to Adolf Hitler. Uh, so, so this idea that if everyone's broken and everyone's sinned a bit, then everyone's sinned against God. It, you know, just to say that a genocide is some kind of infinite sin against God, but lying to your mum about something isn't. Like, I, you know, it seems really odd to me. And then and then if you say, well, and then genocidal Hitler could have gone to heaven if he just, you know, repented on his deathbed. You're like blowing this whole thing out of the water anyway. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of the, sometimes people bring up hell because, you know, we need to have justice. It's like, well, first of all, it's my sense of justice that keeps me from taking hell seriously at all. But second of all, it's like, you don't believe in moral order. You believe that people, I mean, if I'm talking to like an evangelical Christian, they believe that, you know, you confess with your lips that, you know, Jesus is Lord, you accept the free gift of salvation into your heart, and that's how you get into heaven. It has nothing to do with moral order. Like, there can be, you know, basically good people who go to hell and evil people who go to heaven because, you know, you've set up this absolutely bizarre set of criteria for who's sorted into heaven and who's sorted into hell. So, like, why are you talking about justice? Like this isn't, you don't believe in a world with moral order to begin with. But, the, but I mean, this is where you can go down loads of rabbit holes because of course this then rests upon divine command theory or, so, or at least some kind of moral epistemology, which is like, what are the clarity? What, you know, do we know what gets us into heaven and hell? No, as we talked about earlier, do we know what, what good things are? Like, how, how, do, how do I know I've got the right God? How do I know I've got the right commands? How do I know whether is, is homosexuality morally neutral or is it morally bad? Is this morally good? Like, there's such a lack of clarity that, that the whole heaven and hell thing is, is rendered even more horrible because actually we're walking blindly around the world not really knowing 100% what are the good things and the bad things to do and what gets us into heaven and what gets us into hell eternally. And I just, you know, if, if you've got eternity on the line, then man, I want some clarity. I want some absolute clarity. Like, honestly, if I said to you now, oh, by the way, I'm going to give you a test tomorrow, uh, Emerson, but if, if you get the wrong answers, I, you are going to go to hell forever. And then you say, well, what's the test about? And I say, well, I don't know. Oh, well, I do know, but I'm not going to tell you. Then you'll be like, what? I'm going to go to hell tomorrow, possibly. If I get, I don't know, is it like capital cities? Is it mass tests? Right. So, and you just like, kind of vaguely hint that I might go to hell. It's not even clear because you don't want to take my freedom away. So you're like, hey, you might go to hell based on this test. It's like, well, am I or aren't I? It's like, I can't take away your freedom like that. <laughs> So it's just, yeah, uh, the whole thing is just, as I keep saying, a hot mess. Yeah, and I I mean, I I needed to, like, get this um, episode out of my system because I went to church a couple weeks ago, and um, 
you know, like the pastor was talking about, you know, it was, it was mentioning hell and how people are afraid to preach hell these days. And like, um, you know, everyone's going to hell except for the people in that room, seemingly. And, you know, they're all like clapping and cheering and stuff. And I was just sitting there like, this is insane. Like, if I could just show these people who are clapping and cheering, like what they're cheering for, literally clapping and like applauding and cheering for the, you know, people, <laughs> other people are going to hell. Woo. Like, if I could just show them, the thing they were applauding for, they would be more shell-shocked than any, you know, survivor of the most horrific war zone. They wouldn't be able to live normal lives after that. <laughs> like, if they could just see, you know, it, the realm of eternal conscious torment, it would just become immediately obvious how insanely immoral this is. It doesn't matter what people do. Like, even Hitler doesn't deserve this. Like, you're worse than Hitler if you impose this on other people. That's such a good point, Emerson. So, like, like the actual the sheer reality, the the reality of what they're wanting and whooping and hollering for. Like, actually, in rea- in reality, or in their reality, like you would be going to hell, right? Let's assume. Um, and so they're, they're in that church. Like, imagine if everyone said, "Actually, one of them's here." Like, everyone's <laughs> like whooping and hollering, like, "Yeah." you're gonna hell like i can't wait to see you get skinned alive and to feel that pain like and then and then to you know i just oh it's just horrible i mean the the anti-theism levels have been um (laughs) reaching dangerous (laughs) proportions in me over the past couple weeks um it happens every time i go to church every time i go to church or i i expose myself to uh i i have christian friends and they're very intelligent and moral people and then when i leave that little bubble I turn into an anti-theist in like two days. Can I give you a little hint, Emerson? What? Don't go to church. <laughs> Honestly, if I if I want to increase my chances of becoming a theist, I should not go to church. <laughs> Interesting. So we'll we'll just cover. I don't want to keep you all night. I know that. Oh, no, um, no, I'm all right, mate. I mean, you know the, that that horse has bolted. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, we we did only have one other argument though, and we can cover it relatively quickly. It's um well. You say relatively quickly, but A, you're talking to me, and B, uh, actually, it's going to bring into into play another argument in the book, which is the Darwinian problem of evil. So, but yeah, mm-hmm. let's go, let's go for it. Photosynthesis. Do you want to get the ball rolling? I would, because so I mean, the main reason why I'm not the kind of Christian that I'm um, that I'm kind of alluding to, because um, you might think, okay, you guys are are beating up on this particular kind of Christianity or this kind of, you know, big tent of Christianity. But there are some Christians who could join forces with what you're saying. Why aren't you that kind of Christian? And for me, the answer pretty much boils down to the problem of evil. And of the problem of evil, a pretty big slice of it is the teleological argument from evil. And of teleological evil, you know, predation is probably um, the biggest slice of that. So predation has a lot to do with why I'm an atheist, because it's a form of evil in the world where it just seems to have been built into the system. Like all these creatures just operating exactly as they were designed to operate with the psychological and physical attributes that they naturally have. They savagely kill and devour each other, you know, and it, it obviously didn't have to be that way, you know, like, and everything is so incredibly interconnected, like ecosystems and biological systems in general, are so integrated that this isn't something that we could just remove. You know, even if we totally understood gene drives and gene editing technology, we couldn't somehow, like, eliminate wild animal suffering as a result of predation, like, through that sort of technology, even if we had a good grip on it, because every, this is, it would be like ripping the skeleton out of, (laughs) 
out of a, a human and being like, well, let's get rid of this, you know, like, it, okay, well, the whole thing's going to collapse, you know, so we, we have this, we have this evil that's a product of things operating how they're designed to operate. When they mm-hmm. operate in virtue of their natural purposes, they create suffering and it didn't have to be this way. We didn't have to have creatures that were physically and psychologically aimed at <laughs> savaging other conscious creatures. Um, creatures could have naturally been scavengers. They could have naturally been herbivores. You know, these are all possibilities. If God existed, then this is something that I would expect the world to look like. I would not expect to get so much pleasure out of participating in the uh, brutal killing of other animals, you know, and that seems to be like just the norm. So we could have been herbivores and we could have photosynthesized, you know, I mean, we're talking about God here, you know, we're not just talking about like natural forces. So yeah, I mean, the, the whole chapter title just jumped out at me when I was flipping through the the book at first, where it's just like, why don't we photosynthesize? You know, it sounds kind of absurd at first glance, but I think it's actually like a really powerful reason to doubt. Like mm. the fact that um, predation and in our case, not really predation, but like, um, you know, industrial farming, mm. um, the fact that we get so much pleasure out of this and the fact that other animals are psychologically and physically designed so that they, um, you know, savagely kill and devour other sentient creatures. It's just, it's so wildly in conflict with what you would expect to see if there is an unsurpassably great being of perfect goodness and love at the foundation of reality who's ultimately responsible for this biological order. 100%. I mean, each one of these arguments in the book for me is a defeater, right? It's just like, and, and, and a theist has to jump through all of these hoops to then mm-hmm. start getting to things like, you know, the resurrection and the nativity, which I would then. I've got a book that debunks that, and I've got a book that debunks that. But it's like, you know, goodness me, it's so difficult to be a theist, but yet so many people are. And and this is one of, and just another, I think, a really slam-dunk argument. Uh, It's a dysteleological argument. So rather than a teleological argument, dysteleology is kind of like bad design. Uh, And, you know, you can talk about why do humans have you know why do we get appendicitis bad backs you know why why can we choke while eating so easily because we're one of the few you know poorly designed uh, animals uh, that has a very the alimentary canal and our breathing system is so closely uh, interconnected and blah 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 you know these are problems in and of themselves um but then when you as you rightly say then just to merely survive a large proportion of animals require the death and suffering of other animals just to survive, just to exist. Like, who would design that? Who would design that? You know, again, it's it's the, what would you expect? What would you predict if you, if I knew nothing else about anything? And you, uh, well, I'd have to know what love and pain and suffering would be. But if you said to me, right, like, or just now, you said design, uh, you are God. Right, you and an all-loving God design a universe, design an existence. The last thing I'd do would be, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make sure that 50% of the animals require the death of other animals just to survive. Yeah, because that's loving. And it's like, you know, I I I once watched a video on YouTube and I made myself sit and watch a video of a pride of lions eating 
a baby water buffalo live, right? As in the video wasn't live, but the, the, the water buffalo was live. It was eaten alive. And I sat and made myself watch this pride of lions rip it to pieces. And it was so, so distressing. Right. But I made myself watch it because I thought I have to watch this to understand how nature is red in tooth and claw and really what the problem of evil in this natural setting actually entails. And it was horrific. And I'm like, that's happened billions of times this year and over billions of years or millions of years. Uh, and and it is absolutely horrific. What loving designer? would design that to be the case. Now, what are the options? Well, as you said, we could be herbivores, we could, you know, X, Y, Z, or we could just photosynthesize. All animals could photosynthesize. Now, you could say, well, God couldn't create, they couldn't get enough energy from like using the physical systems that that could be the case. Well, like, well, God could change the constants or the universe doesn't have to look like this. God is omnipotent, right? Or the fail-safe is always God could do perpetual miracles such that, you know, that didn't have to happen. Every time an animal was caught, it was actually let go and the predator just got sustenance magically, right? or whatever, right? But it doesn't have to happen, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. There, there's no reason that it has to be this pleasurable to eat meat and animal products and stuff. Like, there's no reason that if it is that pleasurable that it had to come in the horrific way that we get it. You know, like, it's just, it's so, there are so many ways this could have been avoided. And it's, as you say, it's been going on for hundreds of millions of years. Like, that that one instance of suffering that you keyed in on, that's, you know, one being in one day. And when you start zooming out, it, just the weight of it, yeah, like I said, like, that alone keeps me from from believing. And then if you believe in extraterrestrial life and intelligence, then actually this could be happening infinite times around the galaxy, around the universe. And it's like, the amount of genocides and pain and no not genocide the amount of like you know predation and death from carnivorousness or whatever could be an almost on an almost infinite scale it's like what kind of all loving like god is love infinite love like no like that no that that doesn't work and and actually so you can take this argument a few steps further because you it gets quite interesting because you say right well why do we need energy at all why has God created a universe whereby we need energy? Because actually, you're looking at a lot of wars now to do with scarcity of resources, scarcity of energy. You're like, these actually cause problems, that we need all this food in order to survive. And like, the more that we exist, the more humans there are, the more food we need, the less there are other animals to who are competing for us for space and this and that. And, you know, this is an ecological nightmare. Uh, why does it need to be that way? Why do we need energy at all? Why can't we just exist like perpetual motion machines or whatever, you know, without needing energy to do stuff. And then you're thinking, well, why do we need material reality? Why don't we just, if if the end game is heaven, right, this union Mm -hmm. with God in heaven, that's really where we're going, which is infinite, eternal. Our, our earthly existences are infinitesimally small. So, so just in, in chronological sense, like this is nothing compared to the end game, right? Mm-hmm. So why why create this? Like why bother with this? That just create ethereal beings, right? And then you then you start going, well, if the end game is heaven, and you know who's going to get into heaven, and this is another argument in the book. So I'm just 
you know, uh, piggybacking on, on, on the last one, which is why not just create the people you know who are going to get to heaven, just create them in heaven. If you know all the counterfactuals, if you know, so this is about knowing possible worlds and counterfactuals. So if God knows all the counterfactuals of every possible world uh, and has created this one, then, and knows who's going to succeed and in get into heaven, just create heaven with the people on this world that you know are going to get into heaven in heaven. Job done. Because doing it any other way necessarily creates uh, pain and suffering on, on gargantuan scales that, uh, that just makes you look morally reprehensible. I mean, I like how you're just kind of like just starting to explore all of the science fiction-y possibility space here where, you know, once you bring in that divine attribute of omnipotence, it's like, yeah, you've got all the, this this wide open space. How did we end up with this? <laughs> like, you just start like wonder. you realize um, just how pointlessly, malevolently cruel like God would have to be to put us in this particular situation, given the vast possibility space that we don't occupy and could have occupied like i said i don't want to keep you all night and we are at no, an hour and a half here that, that's fine i mean I'll, I'll, I'll as long as you want me but if, if you if you want to uh throw the towel in that's that's absolutely fine um uh you've got otangelo grasso who is a well-known I like, how you're, I like how you're more keyed into the live chat than i i am i have not even been looking at it Oh yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bother looking at uh, Tangelo Grasso, who who often trolls sort of threads like this, is, is on there saying, you know, well, why? If you have argument, you know, if you don't have arguments for naturalism, as if you have not thought about arguments for naturalism, Anderson, um, Aka, a worldview that does not require God, you are empty-handed. Well, he does actually have that. Uh, Emerson does actually think about these things, believe it or not. But I just uh, had a go. debate with John Buck where I defended, I think, six arguments for naturalism. So. Click on the uh, little channel icon underneath this video, and um, you can <laughs> uh, follow that. Have some, have some fun. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, you start putting all these arguments together, and it's just a massive cumulative case. But it's not just a cumulative case, because each one of these individual cases, for me, invalidates God's existence as far as the, the omni-God that we, that we established at the beginning of, of the show. and so. Um, these are huge problems. And, and actually, I, I don't think I've ever seen good, well, I haven't ever seen good responses to any of these arguments because otherwise I wouldn't have presented these arguments because I'd know that they would be easily defeated. And I just haven't. As, as we said earlier, like, or as I said earlier, all, all that you ever get really is sceptical theism. But I did want to bring in something to the yeah. end of well, Okay, I just say something about that really quickly. Like, yeah, yes. skeptical theism, that is kind of this fallback position because it's so hard to actually provide a rationale for the distribution, kind, and degree of suffering and evil that we see in the world. Like, it's it's so impossible to do that. That I mean, that's why skeptical theism exists, because there aren't any good theodicies. Like, if there were, if there was some kind of compelling rationale behind the distribution of suffering we see in the world, then skeptical theism would not be a thing. We would all just appeal to that rationale and say, oh yeah, the world isn't morally random. It actually does make sense. Um, you know, it, or even the little parts that don't make sense are not that disturbing because it's by and large a morally orderly universe. Like there does seem to be a kind of rationale behind the kind degree in suffering or the, the kind degree in distribution of evil that we see in the world. That's not the world we live in. If we lived in a different world, I would be a theist, but we have this world. So, I mean, I, I just don't, <laughs> I feel kind of bad for theists sometimes where they're just like, what would change your mind? 
I'm like, well, living in a different world would be a good start, you know, like getting rid of the hundreds of millions of years of animal suffering and teleological evil would be a good start. But, you know, the only thing that's really open to God, given uh, this, like, abysmal world he's created, it, I mean, it would have to be some kind of religious experience, you know. And I do have to say that I think that I might be a little more impressed by um, Christian universalism than you and open theism and um, sort of the idea that you can have a relationship with God without having explicit knowledge that God exists. Like, I do think that these things are are sort of viable in a way that you think that they're, they cause too many problems, you know, like you, it's just, you know, it's just whack-a-mole endlessly. And I, you know, you might be right, but um, I just, for the time being, I've been a little bit more impressed with yeah. uh, universalists than it, it seems like you might be. <laughs> Oh no, I do no, and I, and I think yes, it's just that um, most Christians aren't universalists. So yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. you could say this is low hanging fruit, but actually, you know, this is these are sizable pieces of fruit, and uh, <laughs> and they need they need bashing or eating. I don't know what I don't know where this <laughs> metaphor goes, but uh, um, but the thing about skeptical theism is is it permits anything. There's nothing that is impermissible. You know, it's, it, what would it take for you to lose your faith? If so, and I often use this example, which is Emerson. Imagine you are like you are tormented and tortured for like fifty years solid, horribly tortured, and you see all of humanity die in front of you. Your family tortured in front of your face and die, and then it's like you're the only entity left, living entity left in in, in the world or in the universe, even. And then you're like, ah. Oh, logically there still could be an all-loving god but there could be a reason no like, this really this seems like gratuitous suffering but i don't want to be arrogant here i don't yeah. want to <laughs> it really seems like gratuitous suffering but you know let's not go crazy so is this you know f uh, phenomenal conservatism you know mm -hmm. if it you know if it seems like it oh yeah i liked your line in the in the only sky article that you wrote about this like you rephrase phenomenal conservatism in the context of skeptical theism like yeah if it walks like a suffering duck and quacks like a suffering duck it's probably a suffering duck that's a nice succinct description yeah. of phenomenal conservatism as it relates to um you know the appearance of gratuitous suffering so if it seems to you that something is the case and there's not really any defeater for that seeming then you have at least some degree of justification for believing that it is the case. And I actually asked Michael Humer about this, if, if it was reasonable to kind of rephrase it as, um, if it seems to you that something is the case, and uh, you know, then in the absence of defeaters, it's rational for you to believe that that's the case. So you know, it seems like gratuitous suffering exists. There aren't any defeaters for that seeming. So it's rational to believe that there is gratuitous suffering until someone offers you some kind of defeater, not just, you know, the skeptical theist route of being like, well, there might be a defeater. It's possible there's a defeater. You know, you're in no position to know that there is no defeater. Like that kind of thing is just a cop out, you know, and it, it just kind of tips their hand, I think, that they don't have a rationale for the uh the evil in the world. Yeah. And you could just put in in their unicorns instead. Well there could be unicorns. I mean you don't know there isn't. And like, well yeah, but is that good enough reason for me to believe that there are unicorns you know what's the positive evidence you know what is a, you know and and this is where theists would then go to oh but look at the bible here's the evidence you know they trust try and justify the amount of evil and suffering in the world by saying well it's more likely that god exists because of look at the bible and so really it comes down to 
you know, and that's why you have to join these things up with doing the abstract arguments like these and the biblical exegesis, you know, to try and say, well, actually, you're not even justified in believing in God from the Bible. What, what I want to say about the photosynthesis argument, just last of all, is, is uh, the Darwinian problem of evil. So problem of evil arguments are strong, as, as you said, you know, they're emotive and powerful. And I think they're the biggest thorn in the side of, of, of theists um because they're so evocative and you can see it around in the world around you um and feel it but the the natural evil arguments are even better because you you can't then say well you know two two hundred forty thousand people died in no a, a fawn died in a forest fire over a three-day period because of free will and because of soul building uh, because actually that makes no sense like this is an animal that's died and didn't need to die so natural natural evil arguments are more powerful than ones involving humans but we've sort of alluded to the 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 issue with carnivorousness and this this you can actually reformulate the uh, problem of evil into the darwinian problem of evil which is to say that you know evolution is is appears to be a pretty horrible way of of getting us to where we're at and if 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 god is all loving then you would expect a different mechanism to be at play here so just um if i can just re read this uh animal suffering as a result is seen by many thinkers as the strongest uh, challenge to the defense of the problem of evil here is an example of such an argument that could be formulated one god is omnipotent omniscient and wholly good two the evil of extensive animal suffering exists three necessarily God can actualize an evolutionarily perfect world. And I'll explain that in a second. Four, necessarily, God can actualize an evolutionarily perfect world only if God does actualize an evolutionarily perfect world. Five, necessarily, God actualized an evolutionarily perfect world. So five follows from three and four, but we have a contradiction since five and two cannot both be true. So it appears that one is false. So what this argument does is to say that God could predict the mechanisms of evolution and design one in which animal suffering is minimized. This scenario can be called an, quote, evolutionarily perfect world. We could imagine a scenario where God could put in place an evolutionary system whereby, for example, just before a gazelle is given a killing bite by a lion, a gene is expressed that naturally tranquilizes the gazelle or some such similar situation. But this appears not to be the case. Instead, we have extensive animal suffering that is hard-baked into the evolutionary system and world so this is a design argument to, to say that actually the process of evolution appears not to be evolutionarily perfect it, it appears to be pretty brutal and horrible and that in itself is a defeater of god or loving god at the very very least it is a gigantic red flag that you know something has gone wrong in your worldview this is, this is a very surprising choice for a perfect being you know, this is the process by which I'm going to bring about my very good creation. I've got lots of options as an omnipotent and omniscient being, but I'm going to go with this one, which just so happens to work in exactly the same way if I'm not involved at all, and also is uh, horrifically brutal and leads to all kinds of pointless suffering. Just well, I'm, I'm sorry. I keep it now that you've. I almost never read YouTube comments or a live chat. Are you sure this is like a real person who we were talking about earlier? Because <laughs> they just yeah, said, no. look at the trees. I mean, this is a fatal mistake that we made. You know, we were talking about evidence against God, and yet in my background, I put trees, which is conclusive proof for God. 
you know, I wasn't even thinking. Oh, you did? Shoot. I've shot myself in the foot once again. He's saying photosynthesis is irreducibly complex. Like, as an atheist, you think everything points to natural sim. It's silly. See, it goes both ways. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that. I, I don't know how you could have. It, it seems like this person is. His, his, his main uh, argument that he will do in a lot of other forums is uh, the Shroud of Turin. And I'm sure, I'm, I'm amazed he hasn't brought up the Shroud of Turism, Turin because he thinks it's the greatest piece of evidence for Jesus. But uh, there you go. I choose to think that this is like a person who has like a really good sense of humor and they are actually on our side. Yeah, it's a Poe. Yeah. Anyway, um, we're at about an hour 45. So that seems like a good ending point. Um, is there anything that you want to say? Uh, definitely check out Jonathan's column on Only Sky. The link is in the description. Um, you can follow him on Twitter, and you can buy this book on Amazon that we've been talking about, and the link to that is in the description as well. Um, is there anything else you want to plug? No, just uh, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to bang on about this book. There are lots more arguments in there. Please grab yourself a copy. It's available in ebook and paperback formats. Uh, please show Emerson some love, some uh, you know, super chat, super stickers. If not today, then another time. He deserves it. The work that this guy does is phenomenal, and he deserves your support. Um, yeah, but you. uh, um, I think, Emerson, you know, I think you do some tremendously good work and I think your your podcasts are, are really, truly brilliant. Um, I just need more time. God, don't you, don't, I mean, you must really think this, but man, if I was to invent anything, well, this is what, okay, here's another argument against God existing. Like, if God existed, I would be able to get all my sleep within 10 minutes, 10 seconds, one second, uh, oh because I'm waste so much time. I could be reading books. I could be getting, gaining more knowledge, but I have to sleep and that <laughs> sucks. And I love sleeping. Don't get me wrong, but what a waste of time, like almost half the day or a third of the day. I know. I mean, like, on the one hand, there's this like soul crushing weight of hundreds of millions of years of animal suffering. And then there's stuff like that I have to sleep, you know, like, I mean, these are kind of equal for me personally, like intellectually, the soul crushing animal suffering is, um, is more weighty, but in my, <laughs> I mean, look, some Christians believe that we have like an eternal afterlife of basically bliss to look forward to. And this will all seem uh, silly in comparison. So I look forward to that. But until then, I'm extremely annoyed by all these minor inconveniences. And and uh, like here's something that's really really important to to mention in terms of the problem of evil. See, we can't even stop at one hour forty five. So uh, the the problem of evil, right, is, is all about gratuitous e uh, suffering. So the idea is that with only God, there can be no such thing as gratuitous suffering uh, because it would invalidate God's all lovingness. So. We often talk about things like genocide and carnivorousness and all these massive things, but it's equally as problematic for your stubbed toe in the morning. Oh, right. And yeah. If, if there's even one instance of gratuitous suffering, like suffering that an omnipotent, omniscient being could have prevented without losing any greater good or, you know, suddenly springing in any equivalent evil, any instance of gratuitous suffering is arguably logically incompatible with the omni-god. Exactly. And it's really worth pointing that out the, 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 off much more because, uh, because just stubbing your toe in the morning has to, has to provide and it has to be necessary, not just like literally necessary. It couldn't have happened any other way. Um, otherwise, you know, God, God would have done it in another way. If it, it could have happened in a more benign way, it would have happened in a more benign way, but it didn't. And therefore that was absolutely necessary. And you're thinking, why does it, why is it that I had to get 
to stub my toe. Why is it that, that <laughs> someone had to have a car crash over there? Why is it that, and then you're like, why did they get cancer? You know, it's the whole gamut from the smallest uh, unit of, of pain and unit of suffering to the biggest unit of pain and suffering mm-hmm. equally have to be explained by uh, Omnigod. Right. If, if it's gratuitous, then it, it technically, you know, it, it, I mean, even if it doesn't have to be necessary, it, there has to be some kind of rationale behind it, you know. It, it, yeah. Anyway, but it's. I mean, uh, Felipe Leon actually tweeted this um, earlier today. Felipe Leon is the one who made me familiar with the teleological argument from evil. He said, like, you know, here are some examples of Morian facts. You know, facts that you can be more sure of than any sort of skeptical argument that pushes you away from them. There's an external world. I have two hands. The past exists, and there's lots of gratuitous suffering. You know, other minds exist, and there's gratuitous suffering. Like, and that does seem right to me. Like, that it seems like you might as well say that we're living in the matrix if you're going to say that there's no gratuitous suffering, because it just takes such an insane, irrational degree of skepticism to deny what's right in front of your face. You know, so I mean, I totally agree. You know, th- those are Morian facts, meaning like if if there's some compelling argument that makes you sort of doubt this fact, then you should sooner doubt the argument than you should doubt the fact if someone gives you a skeptical argument that makes you doubt that other minds exist you should sooner believe that that argument is wrong somehow before you'd start doubting other minds you know and like gratuitous suffering does seem like it's at that level yeah Uh, you know the fact that so like suffering when when you talk about like punishing in terms of suffering, so if if I have a child that that stomps on a flower bed, right, and and I I bring my child out and I and I say, you know, don't do that. That's really be horrible, and naughty, and blah blah blah. And I give them some kind of sanction, right? But my child understands what's going on there, and and I'm 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 saying right, I'm connecting my sanction with what you did stomping on those flat on those flowers in a flower bed, right? But if if my kid stomped on a flower bed, right, and then I pulled my kid aside, no, and then I let that happen, and then the next day I gave my kid cancer, uh, but then didn't tell them why I gave my kid cancer, then like my kid can't connect what they've done wrong to to the punishment they're getting so any kind of suffering that happens or any kind of punishment we we perceive that we're getting like unless there's complete clarity over why we're getting this suffering and why we're getting that punishment that is that is nonsensical there's no there's no rationale for it and therefore what's the point in it you know when when we talk about uh, when you talk about punishment in terms of crime and punishment, there are three elements to to punishment: you know, retribution, deterrence, and rehabilitation. But really, retribution doesn't make any sense when you causally fully understand why people do. You know, it's a whole free will thing. So let's forget retribution. Then deterrence, okay. But rehabilitation is all about right. How do we improve you and make you better? Um, you know, that's that's why we give you suffering and pain of prison or whatever, or, you know, actually, really, we shouldn't. We should just be making you better. But when you look at the suffering in the world and, and the idea that God is punishing us for something, uh, and yet we don't really know what it is that we're getting punished for, uh, and then, you know, why my God-fearing granny has got, you know, cancer and, and a horrible end to her life, and you're like, well, why? What? You know, we're just left questioning all the time. Then, I don't know. That just seems, again, morally reprehensible. Like, if there's no clarity to the sanctions or to the suffering or to the punishment, you know, then then uh, I, I can't see that God is all loving. Yeah, there's a really nice David Bentley Hart quote. Um, 
where he says like the best kinds of atheism are the ones that have a sort of like moral alarm about them at the suffering of the world. Um, like that sort of is just, I mean, it's just uh, something he was saying about himself that he kind of like respects the versions of atheism that are out there um, the most that sort of are in response to the suffering of the world. And I've sort of come around to that view. Like when I first became an atheist, I, I, I somehow saw it as like illegitimate to even think about suffering. It sort of felt like I was complaining or something <laughs> in like an unbecoming sort of way. But um, no, these are just powerful, rationally compelling arguments. You know, this doesn't have anything to do with like having a bleeding heart or something like that. You don't have to just, you know, weep with uh, compassion for the suffering of the world. I mean, it doesn't hurt, but um, I mean, these are just sort of like rational arguments. You know, it's just about what, what would you expect the world to look like, <laughs> you know? But yeah, I mean, that's that's where I'm coming from. But, you know, this happens every single time we talk where um, <laughs> we say, all right, uh, we're about done now. And then um, 45 minutes okay. later. <laughs> last, last thing I'll say, God doesn't exist. Uh, and there's loads of reasons why. And we've just talked about some of them. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Check out, his, uh, check out the plugs that are in the uh, show notes. And don't forget to subscribe if you liked uh, this episode. And yeah, check out the debate I just had with John Buck and check out a tippling floss for YouTube channel. I went on once to talk about uh, meager moral fruits and one time before that to talk about why I'm an atheist. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So I'm glad I finally had you on. Yeah, good times. Thank you very much for this opportunity. All right. Talk to you later.